Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Hello and welcome to Bookworm. You may notice that I don't sound like Michael Silverblatt. That's because I'm Evan Kleiman and I'm thrilled to be filling in for Michael. My usual beat is as host of KCRW's Good Food, a show that has always gone beyond recipes to explore larger issues seen through a food lens. So as guest host of Bookworm, I'm eager to introduce Natalia Molina to you. She's a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. And she's the author of the just-released book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. Hi, Natalia. Hi, Evan. Oh, it's so great to have you. Um, you're an historian of race and immigration. What does that mean? What kind of stories do you cover? And, and what has been at the heart of your work? When you're a historian of race and immigration, people always say, what a great time to study history. But immigration is central to our story of America. Immigration also teaches us lessons about race who we think of as insiders or outsiders, and what makes them so in terms of who has access to citizenship, where they can settle in a city, where they can work, even whom they can marry. And so the idea of citizenship as a tool for thinking about democracy, inclusion, exclusion, have been at the heart of my work now for over 20 years. What is often on your students' reading lists? I teach a lot of classes on Latino studies in general, Latinx studies in general. So thinking about how do we make place in Los Angeles? So perhaps Pierrette Hongdu and Manuel Pastor's new book on South LA and what it means Latinx when your neighbors are African-American and how anti-racism flourishes with the second generation, but not necessarily with the immigrant generation, the parents' generation. Uh, George Sanchez's new book on Boyle Heights that looks at the ways in which immigrants are central to our understanding of democracy. And of course, I love teaching about food and food ways, because as you said in the introduction, food is a lens to look at power relations, immigration laws, labor laws, and also just how people find joy and make place in a city. So your latest book is called A Place at the Nayarit, and the Nayarit was the restaurant created by your grandmother, Natalia Barraza. Do you usually get this personal in your research? As an academic, as a historian, in the beginning, I did not. You know, when you're an academic, you're supposed to write a book to get tenure. But even my first book, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, started from a personal question, which was that... I grew up in LA. I'm a third generation Angelino. I'm a third generation Echo Parkian. And yet when I would look at film and television, I did not see my LA reflected in those images. And I wanted to know why. 
And so I wrote this book on public health and how it shapes our understandings around race and where people could live in Los Angeles, how segregation worked, but also how Mexican immigrants found their place. Um, and there's some stories about food in there and how they resisted health officers telling them that their food wasn't healthy and that they had to raise their children on, on different foods and how to parent, those kinds of things. My second book looked at immigration laws. And again, it doesn't sound personal, but it started from a personal place. I was always interested in the way that Mexican immigrants are always perceived to be or often perceived to be outsiders and understood and experienced discrimination, but yet might also discriminate against other immigrants or African-Americans. And I wanted to know what caused these racial divisions. And so I set about to writing How Race is Made in America. This book, while it seems very personal because it's based on my grandmother's story, didn't begin as a personal story. I was invited to give a keynote on California history, and I'd been teaching classes on race and urban spaces for about 14 years by that point. And I was always fascinated that we tended to look at African-Americans in one space, Latinos in a different space, Asian-Americans in another space. And yet, as you know, in Los Angeles, that's not often how we live our lives. While there is, you know, fair amounts of racial segregation in Los Angeles now, partly due to historical factors, income, these kinds of things, we do also work alongside others, worship alongside others, go to school, and of course, eat out with our neighbors across racial and ethnic lines. So I really wanted to get at that kind of diversity. And I knew about it because of the restaurant that my grandmother had started in Echo Park. And so while I, it is a story of my grandmother's restaurant, how I got into it was not. But of course, as I started researching and hearing these stories about all the people that she helped and that there were so many similarities in their stories, I grew even more deeply attached to telling her story and admiring her as a person, even though I'd never met her. So tell us a little bit about your grandmother and what you found out about her. Where was she from? What made her decide to come to the U.S.? What's her story? My grandmother, Natalia Barraza, immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 21 in 1921. This was a time when many Mexican immigrants were coming to the U.S., both because of the needs that the Southwest had for uh, agricultural workers, railroad workers, but also they were fleeing the Mexican Revolution. And my grandmother was one of those people. Uh, she came on her own. So my grandmother's history was like the history of many other immigrants at the time, an underdocumented history. And so there weren't people around to tell her story. Not only did she not leave archives, there weren't people around to tell her story. And so I found out more about those early years through census records, through business permits that she pulled. Uh, when she first moved here, she was a cook and she cooked in a restaurant, but her dream was to open her own restaurant. She tried during the depression, of course, not a great time to open a business and it failed. But in, after World War II, with the rise of World War II prosperity, she opened her first restaurant, what we now call the Little Nayeti, close to Alvera Street. And she was clearly a very ambitious woman, though she did not know how to speak English or read or write also. Because when that little Nayarit's lease was up, instead of looking to the east and thinking of relocating her restaurant in East Los Angeles, where she would be surrounded 
with immigrants like herself from Mexico who spoke Spanish, she chose instead to go a mile and a half west to Echo Park, a cultural and geographic crossroads. Just to give us a bit more flavor about your grandmother as a woman, can you do us a favor and read the paragraph that begins at the very bottom of page 63? I'll be happy to. We know nothing about the first day of business at Doña Natalia's new restaurant. There are no stories told by my family members about that day, no surviving newspaper ads, and no photos. From what I know about Doña Natalia herself, though my guess is that she treated the day like any other. She was 50 years old. She likely dressed in her usual work attire with her black hair in a relaxed upsweep. She favored fashionable dresses made of practical, hard-wearing fabrics, a 1950s swing dress, a form-fitting top, and a flowing T-length skirt, nothing too constricting or flashy. Her makeup and jewelry likely would have been simple and tasteful, appropriate for facing the public, but not elaborate enough to disturb her when working in a hot kitchen. She probably arrived well before the restaurant opened and made sure that the sidewalk was swept, the chairs were precisely in place, and the vegetables were properly chopped. Then she opened the doors, letting in the fresh air, confident that the customers would come. You know, it's so extraordinary also her age. One thinks these days even that opening a restaurant is a game for young people. And you need so much energy to do it. And the fact that she was a 50-year-old woman who was at this point achieving her dream and beginning a life um, with this restaurant is very striking. It is. And from doing you know, a few dozen interviews for the book, it was very clear to me that it wasn't just her dream. It was the dream that she had for her community. So she used that restaurant as a way to help immigrate people. And perhaps that is what gave her the energy to continue. She hired lawyers to help um, write a letter of sponsorship for their visa applications, meaning that when they applied for a visa, they would be able to show they would have proof of employment. She'll often let people live in her home and she offered them a job at the restaurant though they wouldn't have no restaurant experience. And as you know, Evan, working in a restaurant is hard work. It's hard to train people, let alone people without restaurant experience. And they would rise through the ranks. You know, they might start off as a busboy or bus girl and then turn into a server or maybe help in the kitchen as a dishwasher, then become a line cook. And even some of the, the main cooks at the restaurant uh, had started with no experience, but she trained everybody. Natalia, one of the really extraordinary things that your grandmother did as an older Mexican woman was hire gay Mexican men who were perhaps fleeing their communities in Mexico where they really couldn't live who they were. Yes. Uh, Many of the employees at the restaurant were gay men. And, you know, Echo Park offered gay Mexican men the opportunity to speak Spanish, be around fellow nationals without the constraints they might have experienced in ethnic enclaves. And one of the things that I want to show in the book is we don't live our lives in these racial silos. We're not always just around people like us. 
We also don't usually talk about what it means to be gay and to be an immigrant. We think about immigrants as like these hardworking laborers, and we think about gays as more associated, you know, and here in Los Angeles with spaces like Silver Lake and more being white. And this is a way of showing that, no, the Mexican immigrant community has always had, um, you know, gays and lesbians that are part of our everyday lives. And they were also placemakers. They were also the ones that helped people feel at home at the Nayarit because they doubly knew what it meant to be an outsider, both as an immigrant, as a gay, and as a gay employee. And while the Nayarit wasn't a gay urban anchor, like somewhere like El Conquistador uh, or El Chavo were known for many years in Los Angeles, it was a place where people could feel comfortable going and being themselves. What kind of relationship in general did Nayarit's employees have with Doña Natalia? I interviewed my grandmother's eldest granddaughter because she did know her. And one of my favorite lines of from all the interviews I did came from her, which was that one, when they would go see my grandmother, they wouldn't go visit her at her home. They would go visit her at the restaurant because the restaurant was her life. And when they would come in, they would park in the back, they would enter in the kitchen and they would look to the spot where my grandmother usually left her purse. And if her purse wasn't there, her granddaughter would breathe a sigh of relief because she was scared of my grandmother. Uh, My grandmother was known as a reserved woman with very exacting standards. If the dish wasn't made to her standards, she would send it back. If it wasn't piping hot, she would, they would send it back. She would, sit on a stool that separated the kitchen from the dining room and she would see the food come in and out. And if she saw anything that didn't make, you know, that didn't look up to her standards, she would send it back. And then she would also look towards the dining room and see, oh, that couple has been waiting to be sat. You need to bust that table more quickly. So she wasn't the kind of person that would necessarily go out and greet the customers. That was my my mother, Maria, who always remembered your name, who always remembered what you liked, who asked about your vacation or whatever it was that you had shared with her the last time that you were at the restaurant and always had a smile for you and always you know, made people feel welcome. Can you um, talk about the difference between um, blood relation and what you call fictive kin? Because I, the fictive kin part of her story is really fascinating. As I mentioned before, I hadn't intended this book to be such a personal book. But as I was going through and writing it, I realized that many of the stories I wanted to tell, while they weren't about the contemporary moment, They were about understanding how my community was formed, the community in which I was raised. So to give you an example, my uncle passed away in the early 1990s, and we got together for many years uh, on the anniversary of his death, and we'd pray the rosary. And there was one day where I looked around the room, and I realized everybody in the room, about 40 people, either worked at the Nayarit or were a customer at the Nayarit or were the child of someone who had worked at the Nayarit because the Nayarit and restaurants like this afford people, not just a place to work and not just a place to eat, but a place to form community so much so that they might call each other cousin or aunt and uncle, or they might serve as godfather or godmother to each other's children. And so the people that I grew up with that went on to open their own restaurants, Paragans, El Chavo, Conquistador, 
I would just call them uncle or aunt. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I realized some of these people were not blood relations, but they were the people that were part of my community, were at every party we went to, every funeral that we would visit in the hospital, that they would bring us food when we were sick. So in good times or bad times, these were our family. And the idea of fictive kin is often based on a religious notion, right? Like a the godparents that you may have. But in this case, it's a place-based fictive kinship, not just because they were from the same place in Mexico, the state of Nayarit, but because they established community here in Los Angeles and Echo Park. Can you read a paragraph you wrote about placemaking, please? The Mexicans who worked and ate at the Nayarit were not just putting food on the table or into their mouths. They were creating meaning, establishing links with one another, and tending to roots both old and new. They were asserting their place in a nation that often seemed intent on pushing them to the margins, the fields, the barrio, the kitchen, or back across the border altogether. At the Nayarit and places like it, immigrants lived out values of mutuality, public sociability, and collectivity. The restaurant provided immigrant workers and customers with the familiarity of home and a ready-made social network, offering local history, introductions, and information about how to navigate the system, all invaluable assets for newcomers attempting to negotiate a large, daunting foreign city. These resources and networks available there allowed working people to assume full identities that went beyond who they were as laborers. At the restaurant, immigrants might not feel any more American, nor was that necessarily their goal, but they were insiders. I'm Evan Kleiman, sitting in for Michael Silverblatt, and you're listening to Bookworm. I'm talking with Natalia Molina, and we're speaking about her new book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. We'll continue after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. I'm Evan Kleiman, host of Good Food, sitting in for Michael Silverblatt on Bookworm. And I'm talking with Natalia Molina, author of the book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. So if we're talking about a restaurant as placemaker, we should talk about the neighborhood in which it resides, the Echo Park of the 50s through the 70s. And I should say that, you know, I grew up there, well, close by in Silver Lake and spent a lot of time with friends, um, friends of my my mother's who lived in Echo Park. I, I went to nursery school there at the first co-op nursery school in Los Angeles. And every time I find myself in the neighborhood, nostalgia and sadness um, wash over me because Growing up there in the 60s, it was a village, the kind that people lament not having now and try to falsely create. And your book explores the uniqueness of the neighborhood during those years. 
Talk a bit about Echo Park and what it was like in those days and the archival silence that you found. Echo Park has always been a neighborhood that attracted placemakers, many of whom were outsiders. And so Echo Park is a place where, where artists move, writers, organizers, activists, socialists, communists, hippies, people that often feel like outsiders in other parts of the city. And yet here they find one another and they see the their common cause. It is a place that also did not experience the same type of segregation that other parts of Los Angeles did, formal segregation. In other parts of Los Angeles, they might've been subjected to housing covenants or you built you know, a large housing tracts and it's built into the covenant of the tracks themselves. So even if you as a resident don't wish to actively discriminate against someone, it's built into your housing covenant. Echo Park, perhaps because of its quirky topography uh, because or because of the original placemakers, didn't develop in the same way. And so Echo Park has been home to various immigrants. And so even when we think about this area as being predominantly white in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when we say white, many of those whites were immigrants from Italy, Germany, Eastern Europe, specifically Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Lithuania, uh, Russia, and it attracted other immigrants increasingly, Latinos, Asian Americans, including a Filipino community that has lived in the Southwest Echo Park since the early 20th century. It's also a home to gays and lesbians. It's where the Mattachine Society, the first homophile group in LA started in 1950. It's the home of Angelus Temple, where the Pentecostal evangelist Amy Semple McPherson preached beginning in 1923. And it was the home to white leftists who would rise to almost heroic status in Mexican-American history. People like Carrie McWilliams, who was the editor of The Nation, an attorney, uh, fought for immigrant rights. Alice McGrath, Jewish, who understood the plight of Mexicans and being treated unfairly in uh, the Sleepy Lagoon trial where Mexicans were rounded up and then about 21 were put on trial for the murder of one person. And Alice McGrath started a Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee, which was a activist group that crossed racial and ethnic lines. And Echo Park is home to Red Gulch or Red Hill, this area in which many socialists and communists live. Um, and, you know, just labor organizers. If, in, if you're someone who fights for things like labor rights, gay rights, you're seen as like this rubble rouser, but you know, they're just people who were really fighting for democracy in America and how that starts right there in your own neighborhood and your own city. And it was a, generally a place for bohemians, right? So people that enjoyed the arts, people who wanted to start book clubs, people who wanted to think about what rights meant on a day-to-day -day level. Echo Park has always attracted these groups. Reading this book and seeing how your grandmother created a space that allowed people to feel like they had a place that was theirs and be pretty much themselves so that they could then feel comfortable to go out and explore a larger world is it's really 
extraordinary. We've talked a lot about who worked in the restaurant and who your grandmother brought in to give an opportunity in Los Angeles from Mexico in terms of immigration. But who were the customers? Who also found a home at the Nayarit? Because the Nayarit was in Echo Park, both a geographic crossroads and a cultural crossroads. The customer base was also diverse, but at its core were working class Mexicans. And the Nayari offered them many things they could not find in other parts of the city. One, a place that they could readily bump into friends, that they could eat the food that they were familiar with, that they could speak in Spanish. And this in itself was a major attraction of Nayeri. They may not have been able to speak in their own language at work even uh, because it wasn't allowed or because those that they worked for did not speak Spanish. And even today, speaking Spanish is a political act. You know, we need to keep in mind that just in 1998, California voters passed Proposition 227, which was primarily an anti-bilingual education measure that championed a legal definition of English as the official state language. This wasn't even repealed until 2016. So the Nayarit was a place where Mexicans knew they would be able to relax, speak in their mother tongue, and readily bump into friends and fellow nationals. There were also movie stars that went to the Nayarit. Famous people also went. People like uh, Rita Moreno, who, you know, of course, the, her portrayal of Anita in the West Side Story gave young Latinas, including me, their first chance to see someone who looked like them in an important Hollywood role. Um, Mexican cinema stars Emilio Fernandez, nicknamed El Indio, who, you know, it's rumored that the Oscar was, uh, the Oscar statue was modeled on him, but it you know, turns out that's more of an urban myth. Uh, famous Band leaders like Tito Puente, dubbed the king of Latin music, Xavier Cougar, Abby Lane, Cal Jader, Marlon Brando, but also just musicians who finished up their local set in the neighborhood, right? Their local clubs in the Echo Park, Silver Lake area, uh, Club Virginia in MacArthur Park or Club Havana in Silver Lake. When those musicians were done, they would come to the Nayari. When restaurant employees were done in other parts of the city, they would come to the Nayarit because the Nayarit was open to four in the morning. So it was that place that even workers could come into a space where now they could be the ones that were being treated to having someone bring them a beer, a bowl of menudo. The story is so extraordinary, and the book has so many different levels to it. It's an absolute fascinating read. Um, And I understand that you're not keeping any proceeds from this book. You're donating them. Um, Why and to whom? Many people were out of work during the pandemic. As we know, restaurants closed and certain workers were able to receive some form of aid from the federal government or the state. But immigrant workers and documented workers were left out in the cold, even though what we all wanted as soon as we could get back out there was to go to restaurants. These are the people that are still working in our restaurants today. And so I'm very proud to partner with No Us Without You and to donate the proceeds from the book for this year. Thank you so much for joining us today, Natalia. It's been a very special conversation for me. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.
That was Natalia Molina, a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She's the author of the book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. If you want to hear more about the food at Nayarit, look for the good food version of this conversation in the coming weeks. You can visit kcrw.com slash bookworm for the episode of today's show. It's available on all podcast services and on demand with KCRW smartphone apps. Thanks to Anna Buss, Laryl Garcia, and Connie Alvarez for production assistance on this episode, as well as PJ Shahamat. I'm Evan Kleiman, sitting in for Michael Silverblatt. I am a bookworm, we are a bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.